Today, dear listener, we're going to be talking about one of the unsung heroes of the romance genre, a woman who wrote a book that was so salacious to the contemporary reader, it was deemed shameless and shameful fiction. (gasps) Do I have your attention now? You always have my attention. Oh, thanks, Jen. Let me introduce you to author Eleanor Glynn. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's Let's rage! rage! All right, Jackie, do you want, like, a boomer joke this time? Yes, please. (laughs) What do a husband and a grenade have in common? What? They both leave you hurt when you pull off the ring. Oh! Oh! That is a very appropriate joke for this episode. I was hoping. It's almost like I fed you a prompt. (laughs) Um... Yeah, well, with that being a great joke to kick off the theme of this episode, first off, I want to say, Jen, happy birthday to us. Happy birthday. It's our two-year anniversary birthday. Yay, Raging Romantics. Huzzah. Thank you to everybody for sticking with us. Wow. Thank you to Noble (laughs) for still supporting us. We are very appreciative. And it's been two years, and I... Just had somebody text me today that they were listening to our very first episode ever. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, please don't. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we need to just burn that from the internet. Oh, uh, but at the same time, they were really excited by it. So oh, that's good. Okay. I'm glad you... there was like a little glimmer there of, of potential and what we would soon become. I know. Apparently, the cat made a big difference in that first episode. Yeah, that's fair. So <laughs> Phoenix is apparently the Fabio of the cat world. So <laughs> if you go back and listen to that first episode. Please don't. We'll redo it someday. We will redo it someday. We have to. One day I will make Jackie read Flame in the Flower and she will throw the stupid book too. I have no doubt that I will. Mm -hmm. Well, it being our two-year birthday anniversary slash awesomeness, I wanted to again dive into the history. What a shock. Nobody is surprised yet. Wow. Um, Of the romance genre. And today, I am so excited to talk about the topic today. I am going to be taking a look. We are going to be taking a look. Oh, good. At one of Romance Landia's unsung heroes, author Eleanor Glynn, born 1864, died 1943. That, like, just that time period that she mm-hmm. lived in. Civil War to almost World War II. Yeah, it's a lot going on. I know. She was British, so, you know, Civil War wasn't really impactful to her, but World War was. Yeah, that was a big one. So, <laughs> Eleanor, whom I will be referring to as Nell for the rest of the episode, was a fascinating woman in case Jen can't tell by my hand gestures Listen, going I mean, on. She sounds awesome. She's I, so cool. I only read the one article you sent me because I wanted to be kind of surprised for this episode but like oof, wow I'm so, so mad cool. I have never heard of this woman before. I have found a new hero in this woman I have to say mm-hmm. um, and someone who I can definitely count as one of my idols and mm-hmm. what gets me is that she is so unknown in a field where she was incredibly influential. Mm-hmm. 
And it's not like it's that long ago, no. really. Nineteen forty. Like, there's still people alive from 1943. And the thing is, we'll talk about people that she was contemporaries with and mm-hmm. that she rubbed shoulders with, like Samuel Goldwyn, Charlie Chaplin. So Samuel Goldwyn of MGM yeah. fame. Charlie wow. Chaplin. Clara Bow. She mm-hmm. invented Clara Bow. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, the term it girl, mm-hmm. she invented that term. Mm-hmm. Like, you have it. Yeah. She was the one who came up with that. Okay. And, like, her sister, Lucy, was a fashion designer who came up with some... We'll get into it. Like... Mm-hmm. I can't believe I've never heard of this person before. Writing in the early 20th century, not only was Nell a mover and shaker in the romance and writing world, but she also had a foot in the golden age of cinema. She rubbed shoulders, like I just said, with Charlie Chaplin, Samuel Goldwyn, Clara Bow, Rudolph Valentino, and more. <laughs> Seriously, cool. there's even a rumor that she might have had an affair with Rudolph. Mm-hmm. In fact, Nell is accredited with being the first person, as I just said, to use the phrase, you have it. It being that undefinable sexual charisma that you either have or you don't, and that everybody since the start of modern fame-seeking has strived for. Not only that, but Nell can also be accredited with such inherently feminine symbology in media as the animal skin rug, long strands of pearls and silk negligees, rose petals on the bed, and velvet nightgowns. I'll be honest, I thought some of that was going to be Daniel Steele. No. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I feel like Daniel Steele and Eleanor Glynn might have been besties. Mm. Like, they just have the kind of same vibe yeah but yeah we'll get into it and like the animal skin rug too that's not just like i don't know people have been doing that forever since they've been skinning animals oh we're gonna talk about it okay is we're this gonna... like a burt reynolds thing where he's like stretched across the mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. there's reynolds, even right? a ditty written about it wow yeah mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read you the ditty if i can find the exact okay. one it's one of my tabs and my many tabs in the mm-hmm. book um but for a woman who was so incredibly influential on the entire era and genre, her name has largely been lost to history. So with the help of some awesome resources, let's give Nell another moment in the limelight. And fun fact, it's called limelight because in the early 1800s, theater stages were lit by a heating a cylinder of lime mineral, and the result was an intensely bright white light. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, um, Jen, I we've already affirmed you've never heard of I've Nell I've never Glenn. heard of this woman, and I'm so mad. How has nobody mentioned her? You know how much like romance on fiction I read too? Because I want to be a smart person for this podcast, you know, comparatively. And I I don't think I've ever heard of this woman. And not only now, but the book, one of the books that she wrote, we're going to get into it, was Mm -hmm. one of the first, like they call it a sex novel, but it's Mm -hmm. what we would call today a romance novel. One of the first globally banned romance novels. (laughs) Yeah. Like before, like uh, Fanny Hill level where you're like being banned by governments. Yeah. Like, it was forbidden, we'll get into it, but it was forbidden to be sold in Boston. Like, you could be fined Mm. for selling and buying it. The ALA, the American Library Association, forbade selling it. No! Yeah. ALA? ALA. I mean, it was 1908, but still. Still. You should have had a history of diversity and intellectual freedom. Have or you, even back then. Have you heard of the Comstock laws? Does that like ring a vague me. bell? It's like a law against obscenity. Oh, that basically. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The Comstock law was almost directly written in opposition of her book. Ooh, that's pretty cool. Like it's, it's pretty close time mm-hmm. frame, so it might have been directly related, but it was one of the first books that the Comstock law applied well, to. Well, I'm already mad that I know all about yeah. Fanny Hill, but I don't know this lady. Okay. I wonder why sexism. <sighs> I know. We're also going to deal pretty heavily in how awesome of a feminist she was. Mm-hmm. So, and it's no surprise Like there. in general or for the time? 
in general oh nice yeah okay. honestly Even better yeah cool so i had, like jen i had never really heard of this woman before until i stumbled upon a recent article in this month september 2022's uh atlantic entitled the case for bodice ripping <laughs> which is just a great title and that's it's why funny. i read it mm-hmm. um it's an article about the power of romance and i highly recommend it to anyone who loves romance books i have to say it wasn't too mean no like there was one or two lines that was a little bit like yeah okay yeah but for the most part it was like like a very good take on romance the author mostly defames those who would call romance trash Mm -hmm. and those who seek to put the genre down by citing the subversive power of the genre and quote revolutionary potential inherent in women expressing and exploring what they really want because hell yeah and i owe you a quarter and i don't even care (laughs) quarter i love quarters (laughs) but more importantly for this episode the author also heralds Eleanor Glynn as a shrewd, clever businesswoman, a pioneer in the film industry, a patron of stars, like I said, as Rudolph Valentino and Clara Bow, and overall a powerful woman with the skill and knowledge to back it up. Her infamous book, Three Weeks, became renowned on both sides of the Atlantic for good and bad reasons. It both inspired and incensed readers and consumers and became one of the most censored pieces of literature prior to D.H. Lawrence's censorship issues in the 1920s. But we'll get there. Let's start, as Charles Dickens would have us do, at the very beginning. We start there a lot. <sighs> we do. <laughs> but it's it's just so fascinating yeah. to look at her life. No, I'm excited. Yeah. Let's go back. Let's go back to her in the womb. Yeah. Come on, let's go. Okay. Let's go very um, beginning. <laughs> the majority of information for this episode came from a book called Inventing the It Girl, How Eleanor Glynn Created the Modern Romance and Conquered Early Hollywood by author Hilary Hallett. Um, this is a very recent publication, as in it just came out like August 2022. <laughs> and it's honestly a really good book. Nonfiction is hard for me to read. Hello, grad school burnout. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed this biography of a truly fascinating woman. And by any chance, is there a certain library you can get this book? <gasps> well, Northern Onondaga Public Library oh. is actually one of the only libraries in the county that has it. Oh, wow. So well, shout out for to us. Bill Hastings Thank for you, Bill. <laughs> buying this book. I and... to mention we said his name in a... <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we are mostly going to be focusing on Nell's early career as an author before she moved to Hollywood, simply due to time constraints on this episode. I mean, we've already been talking for like 10 minutes and I haven't even started. Yeah, we've just been gushing. I'm sorry. (laughs) Not really. Um, so just a heads up that there is more to the story that I could even hope to cover. All right. Ready? Let's get in there. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) So to begin. Nell Glynn, Eleanor Glynn, was born in England on October 18th, 1864, making her a fellow Libra. I think that's why I like her. We would just, we yeah, would okay, bond. Right, okay, right, anyways. Right. When Nell was two months old, sadly her father died and her mother moved their family, including Nell and her older sister Lucy, to Guelph, Canada in 1865. There they lived with Eleanor's senior mother, Grandmama Lucy. That, that's really the, the grandma? That's grandmama. That's so fussy. <laughs> yes. Um, and for the most part, it appears that this was a good time. Oh, Although Lucy butted heads with her grandma, her maiden, like her, uh, what's the name? Namesake. Her oh, namesake. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nell was at odds with the traditional rigorous upbringing Grandmama Lucy put in place on the girls. So this time period, what is that? Like Victorian? Yes, this okay, will be Victorian. So this is like the super. Yeah. Okay. And um, so we're in Canada, so it's still under Victorian right. rule. But in the U.S., this is Reconstruction. They, Actually, Civil War era. So. Right. So were they like upper middle class, middle they class? They were. Okay. Um, Grandmama Lucy had moved <laughs> out with Grandpapa. That. They moved to Canada to actually build a farm, but oh. it wasn't like a like a dirt farm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, we're so poor. It was yeah. like a like a no, farm. we're gonna farm. Oh, okay, yeah. like a pasture yeah. farm. Yeah, like um, the fancy lords and ladies in England yes. farm. Yes, they mm-hmm. were. Um, 
they were upper class, like they were part of the gentry in England. We'll get into that with mm-hmm. her stepfather, um, but they weren't like uh, lords and ladies. Okay, I no, mean, I was just wondering yeah. like how traditional yeah. this upbringing was yeah. going to be. Was, and it, it was like, pretty traditional. Okay, so like yeah. pretty annoying. Like they were raised as ladies Ugh. with a capital L. Gotcha. Yeah, and Nell did not. She kind of strived against that. Nell mm. was a redhead, by the way. <laughs> so that tells you a lot about her personality mm-hmm. right there. Um. In 1870, Nell's mother remarried to David Kennedy, and they moved back first to Scotland, then in 1871 to the small Isle of Jersey, which is a Channel Island, so it's mm-hmm. between France and England. So not New Jersey. No, correct. <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey. Um, Nell would live in her stepfather's house until she got married 20 years later. During this time with her stepfather, Nell appears to have lived the typical life of a genteel Victorian lady. She was educated for a short period of time, but around 1878, Kennedy announced, quote, he would waste no more money on the education of one girl. Jerk. And Nell was left to her own devices. In turn, she would read voraciously in her stepfather's library, creating in her a lifelong admiration and love of books. She read widely in multiple languages and through multiple subjects. A lot of these books, medieval romances, adventure stories, and dramatic escapades, would imprint themselves on her later work. One of her favorite was um, Becky Sharp, William Makepeace Thackeray. Mm. Thackeray, Thackeray. I'm never sure how to say it. Um, That was one of her favorite books. And Becky Sharp will make an appearance later. Cool. Finally, a Becky we like. Yeah, hey, Becky. All right. In addition to her rather eccentric education, as a gentlewoman in the Victorian era, Nell also had the opportunity to go on several trips that would also imprint on her later work, notably when she visited Paris in the mid-1880s. Paris at this time was a sumptuous landscape known as the Belle Epoque. From 1871 to 1914, France, and especially Paris, was known for its glamour, eroticism, hedonistic lifestyle, and was especially loved for la vie bohème. If you've ever seen Moulin Rouge, Mm. you know what that is. Um, It existed in opposition of other more staid cultures, such as England, under Victorian and later Edwardian reign. While nowhere near a free love lifestyle, the French did embody ideals of amour, love, and courtship that impressed upon Nell a love of love. Yet, during this time, she resisted any offers of marriage. As a gentlewoman, but not a noble, Nell had neither money nor title to offer a suitor. She was beautiful, universally recognized for attractive features, flowing red hair, sharp green eyes, and fashionably small waist. But beauty was not enough to attract what Nell was hoping for, a good prospect and something close to a love match. Victoria's own love match with Prince Albert in 1840 had begun to set a precedent among the landed elite. While love matches and marriage were still more rare, they were an ideal that had begun to have a light shown upon them in European society. This was how Nell found herself back in London in 1891, 27 years young and firmly a spinster. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty old back then. Or a, quote, surplus woman, as they were known to the set at the time. Mm -hmm. She was living with her sister Lucy and Lucy's first husband in town. Her good looks, style, and French glamour got her many invitations, though. And that winter, she went to a ball in Devonshire. There, she apparently incited a quarrel amongst four friends, and all four tuxedo-clad men ended up in the lake in winter in England. This, quote, lake episode made Nell even more famous, and that was how Clayton Glynn Jr., a confident, charming, slightly older gentleman, heard of Nell and decided to make her acquaintance. While not a love match or even really a passion match, Nell recognized the opportunity that presented itself and married Clayton in a fashionable London ceremony on April 27th, 1892. So when you say opportunity, is it because she was too old or because he had money? 
both okay like at this point like i said she was 27 Mm -hmm. she had no real prospects that were offering her she knew she had to step up in the world and she Mm -hmm. knew what she wanted that's gonna be the theme now knows what she wants Mm -hmm. um and she wanted to marry into this lifestyle she wanted to marry into a richer better off lifestyle um and so clayton comes along and she recognizes hey he's nice he's Mm -hmm. reasonably attractive he's got money for now um (laughs) (laughs) there's a little spoiler for you um and she's like, you know what? This is my opportunity. I okay. like what I'm seeing. Clayton quickly moved Nell to Shearing Hall in Essex, a country estate that was far from the glamorous city life Nell preferred. And she was soon mired with boredom. She didn't like to hunt, didn't know much in the way of being a country noble, and preferred to be inside by the fire with a book and a cat in her lap. She did make lifelong friends with the crowd of the likewise disillusioned country set, namely with Lady Daisy Greville, Countess of Warwick. What's especially of interest to note during this time is the mindset of the nobility and the gentry when it came to extramarital affairs. Ooh. Mm, spicy. Now, as I said mere minutes ago, love matches were becoming more popular, or at least somewhat recognized as social impetus during the Victorian and Edwardian eras. But love matches were still not the norm. Indeed, in a society that was shifting between the old landed power centers of the Regency and Georgian eras and forward into the industrial era, as power began slowly shifting out of the hands of the nobility and into the more common hands thanks to the spread of economic might and wealth, nobility clung even tighter to its ranks, creating this societal divide between the, quote, old money, those with inherited wealth and status, and the nouveau riche. Think of that scene in the Titanic when they're all boarding the ship and they're sneering at the Americans who made all their money. They're like... Don't talk to them. They made their money. Those were the true class sentiments. During Nell's lifetime, even though a woman such as she may have hoped for passion and love that some women such as Victoria and Albert, or even Andrew and Louise Carnegie, Nell was also stuck in a marriage that was mostly loveless, and if we can infer from her own recountings of her honeymoon and relationship with Clayton, passionless. And you know, that's not a great standard to try to live up to, because, no. I mean, Victoria and Albert are rich. Yeah. They they have the resources to be They're in also love cousins. And, like, they were I first. about that. <laughs> they were first cousins. They had the same grandparents. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if you have, like, lots and lots of money, then, yeah, you can be in love as much as you want. Exactly. So. And that's, and even, like, the Carnegies. Andrew Carnegie was, like, one of the first millionaires. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, sure, go be in love. Yeah. yeah. I, that's probably a very <clears throat> uh, cynical take. From yeah. <laughs> but along those lines, mm-hmm. as had been recognized really amongst the wealthy and arranged marriages for centuries, affairs were, if not openly discussed, then they were at least widely accepted. Indeed, you can say that they were even expected. Nell's own bestie, Lady Daisy Greville, was the mistress of Prince Edward, son of Queen Victoria, while she was married to Lord Greville. Mm. Nell, however, remained faithful to Clayton, if not in mind, then at least in body, during their entire marriage, as far as we know. And I think we can pretty well trust it because everybody was like, oh, my God, Nell was so faithful despite everything that she did. Mm. And this was both, yeah, despite everything. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. And this was both to her detriment and to her benefit. To her detriment because it made her deeply unhappy in her relationship. And she and Clayton had this simmering tension between them for their entirety of their marriage. Nell, by all beliefs, was a passionate woman. She was filled with joie de vivre, excitement, thirst for adventure, and the unknown, and yes, even desire for physical satisfaction. Clayton just seemed not to care. Didn't he say anywhere why he picked Nell then to marry her? She was beautiful. That was it? Yeah. Okay. That was pretty much it, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. Um, Towards the end, he wasn't all there. Okay. So... And we don't have any of his writings, Mm -hmm. as far as I know. Okay. Yeah. That's really just a tale as old as time, Mm. sadly. 
Um, but this was also to Nell's benefit because all this longing, desire, and general depth of feeling made its appearance later in her work, which we'll get to in a minute. For now, though, this lack of affair and lack of intimacy between husband and wife shows us some of the first cracks appearing in Nell and Clayton's marriage. It was during this time that Nell gave birth to her first daughter, Margot, in 1893. The birth itself went as well as a Victorian-era birth could have gone. If you want to know more I about... Don't. Yeah. No, oh, well, skip it. If you do, check out Hallis' chapter um, in Sickness and in Health, which will horrify you to no end, I have no doubt. Ugh. Yeah. Unfortunately for Nell, though, Nell fell victim to typhoid fever, possibly as a result of the lack of modern sanitary practices during the birth itself. Mm. Nell convalesced during 1893 at her home in Shearing, which didn't help her mental state, locked away from her friends, sick and without much home support. Her husband also left her to party in the Mediterranean. Wow. Yeah. She should have cheated on him. This is going to be an ongoing theme. So just be prepared to roll your eyes a lot. Um, Nell was quickly diagnosed with, I have a hard time saying this word, neurasthenia, neurasthenia, and puerperal insanity. Is that a real thing or is that like a Victorian it's sickness a Victorian they made thing. of? Okay. Nowadays it would probably be postpartum depression. Okay. Um, this is a constellation of health problems at the time, more commonly known as shattered nerves or nervous collapse. Like I said, nowadays she was most, would most likely have been diagnosed with PPD, if not general depression. But thanks to a lack of modern medical understanding and a misogynistic view of the female sex. Glad that's in play. <sighs> Nell was prescribed only the rest cure and was sent to the Riviera to convalesce in a place that was more conducive to her general well-being. Did the baby live? Yes, the baby oh, okay, fine. okay. Yeah, so the like, babies where's are the fine. baby? The baby is with the nanny. Oh, oh yeah. If that's yeah. They don't raise their kids. No, they don't. <laughs> Baby's fine. Baby goes okay. on to live a perfectly happy, healthy life. Cool. Good. At least yeah. there's that. Yeah. Like, Nell also seems to have been a great mom. Mm. Um, Clayton is a bit apathetic, but he also, like, had a hand in his children's upbringing. So mm. we can at least give him that, I okay. guess, if we give him anything. If we start at the lowest possible bar, <laughs> the he The bar cleared, is on the floor. He cleared one. <laughs> yes. Uh, Nell did recover well enough by 1895. The Glens were back to the, quote, seasonal migrations of the leisure class. Nell, again, fell sick in Rome that year, but again, recovered in 1896. There's going to be a lot of her getting sick and getting better and getting sick and getting better. Um, But during this time in 1896 in London, she fell into one of her first loves, the theater. And she performed in a charity production of a play directed by James St. Clair Erskine, the Earl of Rosslyn. She should have slept with him. She should have. I don't know who he is, but I just don't I like mean, this a, husband. A patron of the theater. Like, just mm-hmm. the theater, darling. Yeah. That's how I imagine her talking. Like, every single quote I read mm-hmm. of hers, I'm like, darling. And I'm like, okay. Lots of hand movements. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> a lifelong patron of the theater, Nell was now personally enmeshed in the world of acting and found a new facet of her personality that would easily lend itself to her later presence and portrayal. It would also lend to her sensual nature, la vie bohème leaking out of Paris and into the world of the stage, allowing Nell to explore a part of herself, at least on stage, that she would not let herself partake in in real life because of her marriage. By 1898, though, her, her stage career at this point mostly came to an end, and Nell gave birth to her second daughter, Juliette Evangeline, on December 18, 1898. <sighs> Disappointed in yet another girl and not an heir, Clayton Ugh. turned to partying alongside, quote, Dandies, ruse, spendthrifts, and scions. Gambling and losing a lot of money. What a cliche. Of which Nell was ignorant. Oh, Nell. And once again, sadly, she did fall ill the following fall. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be during this time that Nell's blossoming career as an author would take hold and run away from her in leaps and bounds. 
While she was pregnant, Nella began to revisit her old diaries, taking joy in her writings of youthful pre-marriage adventures and laughing at her younger self's lack of knowledge about certain things. <clears throat> certain things. Oh. Mm. And even in her general lack of education, she like kind of poked fun at her writing and like her oh. misspellings. And she was, like, when she sent these That's diaries cute. to her friends, she was like, I know they're badly written mm. and just laugh alongside me. Because, mm. I mean, education. She yeah. wasn't educated past, what, 13? Mm. So... So inspired, she wrote a weekly fashion column for the society magazine Scottish Life, offering opinions about trends and beauty advice. This installment was called Les Coulisses de l'Elegance, that's a hard word to say in French, and began appearing on May 14th, 1898, and was in epistolary format, a la Dear Abby, as letters between the fictional Suzanne, the audience, and Griselda, the writer. I love how rich people just fall into careers like this. I know. Like, sure, let me just go write an let article every month. Like, writing. sure, okay. It's like, okay, sure. And it, it's a runaway success. Yeah. It would be this article and the recollections of favorite books as a child that turned her mind from her recent birth and illness in the spring of 1899 and helped her begin to pen The Visits of Elizabeth, an epistolary novel that adhered Lucy to a marriage plot that concludes with the heroine's marriage to a handsome duke. Does that sound familiar, Jen? Maybe a little. No, 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 vaguely. No, no, no. Just a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> also, an epistolary novel, for those who don't know, is like, it's a novel in letter format. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel mm-hmm. Society is epistolary mm-hmm. novel. What really made this book stand out, though, was all of Nell's self-insertion into the narrative. Her disdain and observation of society's manners and code, satirizing the nobility in their affairs, all of them were prevalent. Through Elizabeth, Nell, as Hallett points out, was able to, quote, cut down to size snobby women, lecherous old men, <laughs> and politely predatory husbands. It's kind of fun. Elizabeth reveals the nastiness below society's polish, exposing its rampant philandering in a manner that maintained literary property by using a code that flew over the heads of unsophisticated readers. Kind of love that. Yeah. That's kind of, like, very ballsy, but yeah. very, like... <laughs> She's very, like, her brain just operates at this level that... Despite her lack of education, she's just so smart mm. and, like, quick. Yeah. Yeah. I just, oh, I love this woman. Okay. Nell, I love you if you can hear me. All right. Well, not what we would today consider racy or indecent, in Nell's day and age, this social critique from a member of their own social circle was, for lack of better words, shocking. It lifted the curtain on a lot of practices and social mores that the upper echelon of British society preferred to keep mum about, like Gossip Girl. <laughs> Now, if we remember from our History of the Romance and Publishing Industry episode, during this time frame, many novels were serialized in newspapers and magazines. Think Sherlock Holmes. And Elizabeth and Nell were no different. The visits of Elizabeth began appearing as letters in The World, a journal for men and women, on August 9, 1899. Then it appeared in shorter novel form in America in 1900. And here's another fun fact for you. The World was the first publication to print interviews with public figures. Oh, cool. Yeah. But back to Nell. Elizabeth's letters were immensely popular. Imagine the notoriety of Lady Whistledown, or yes, even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It was so popular, in fact, that Nell began appearing in society not just as a lady and a mother, but indeed as an author. So when you say that, she's actually going out and she's like, hey, my name's Nell. I'm, I write stuff. Yes. Oh, that's cool And back even then. to the point where she was like dressing up specially when she was mm-hmm. being an author, like glamorous and like feathers and mm-hmm. special dresses. Her sister, Lucy, by this point, was a famous dressmaker and famous costume maker and she mm-hmm. would wear Lucy's designs. Oh, nice. Yeah. She's like doing the OG press tour stuff. 
Then in 1900, she was courted by Duckworth Publishers, and she agreed to write a longer version of the letters for publication, like not just in America, but in the UK. Mm -hmm. This edition was such a sensation that it was one of the first ever novels to be marketed as a bestseller. There was, of course, some kickback from critics, oh, mostly, those, I know, mostly those who would associate women writers with whose heroines, quote, broke some of society's cardinal rules, contributed to a larger discussion of the physical act of sex and its place in society. This was also referred to as the, quote, woman question, a rising debate centered around early feminism and where these new women belonged in Western society. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Gross. But Elizabeth was still a resounding success, and Nell made a good profit from the book sales, and that let her go on adventures to exotic places like Cairo. <laughs> Nell and her family would travel to Cairo twice between 1901 and again in 1902. On her first trip, Nell saw the Sphinx for the very first time and had such an impression on her that it would make an appearance later in her 1910 novel, When the Hour Came. On her second trip, Nell again fell ill. Wow, say that ten times fast. Mm. Nell again fell ill with what to me sounds like a gallbladder or maybe an appendix issues. But while convalescing in the Jardin de Plantes in Cairo, she was so inspired by the enchanted air of the garden that Nell wrote her sophomore novel, The Reflections of Ambrosine, in 1901, which was then published in early 1902. In this book, she asks the question, what if she had bowed to societal pressure and married instead the first brash millionaire her family had suggested to her instead of waiting years for Clayton? Which honestly should have done. <sighs> yeah. But she asked that. And the answer in the novel is adultery. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> the heroine openly breaks societal rules and has a very public affair with a man modeled on one of Nell's own suitors. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, Nell. Between her two trips, one man Nell had met was a very charismatic gentleman, the Grand Duke Boris Vladimirovich of Russia, first cousin to the late Russian Tsar Nicholas II. The, quote, sexually charged interactions Nell had with Boris would further inspire Nell's creative energy, leading the depictions of intimacy in her novels and especially reflections of Ambrosine to further erotic territory. Yet still, Nell remained faithful, denying herself any <sighs> physical intimacy outside of her marriage. Listen, first of all, it's hilarious that they're sexually charged anything with a guy named Boris. I know. <laughs> And second, I really wish Boris had just killed the Clayton. Like, God, this guy sucks. God, that would have been such a great novel. Oh, God. Yeah. That's what she should have been writing. Oh, we'll get into the murder plots in a minute here. <laughs> Again, we see this dramatic self-insertion in her novel that gives us a true impression of what it was like to be Nell during this time. She was in this beautiful, sensuous, inspiring place surrounded by men, pretty gorgeous men apparently, to whom she was sexually attracted. But she was stuck in a passionless relationship with a husband whose apathy was infamous. Oh, that's even more embarrassing if people know that, yeah, your husband barely cares about you. Yet Nell's character just shines through. She refused to bow to the unspoken rules of her class and refrained from taking lovers outside of her marriage. Instead, she explored these feelings and desires in her books. I mean, I'm very glad for the books, but I'm just saying, yeah. like, cheat. Yeah. I should not be... <laughs> I would not normally be saying, yes. you know, do that, but for this time and place, and this guy sucks, and... yeah. I should stop talking about cheating so much. Wow, this is bad. <laughs> I think that we applaud Nell at the same time. We're like, oh my God, woman. Yeah. We understand. Maybe I'm just looking too much into a 21st century lens where I'm like, yeah. please just leave this guy. Yeah. Please leave this guy. And if you're telling me that, yeah, affairs are like whatever for exactly. these people, just yeah, go have fun with Boris. It's like, why are you castigating yourself? That's yeah, a Yeah, like word, what right? are you doing to yourself right yeah. now? I am, Like if I was her best friend, I would kind of be like, 
please just stop. And like, that's this the thing. Is not Daisy, at Lady Daisy, Gravel was mm-hmm. like, it's fine. Just have an affair. Yeah. And Nell was like, I can't. Was she like a really principled woman? Was it just I, like a religious thing? She wasn't religious by yeah, all. Anything I, that I I would be find. surprised if she was. Really but like, what's going on here? I feel like when she was raised with her grandmother, like those first five years of her mm-hmm. life, they're just so impressionable because her grandmother was by all accounts a very faithful woman. Um, a very like staid classic traditional Stand woman by your man yeah i think that that was the thing because even after her grandpapa died mm-hmm. grandmama lucy remained in canada on the farm okay. just never so, left yeah i think okay. that that just had such an impression um and she saw a lot of drama go on in her sister lucy's relationship that mm-hmm. i think that that might have played into a little bit so maybe too okay you're in a passionate relationship but at least there's no drama yeah there's exactly. no like crazy it's like, ex-boyfriend yeah mm-hmm. it's like everybody knows you're having marital issues but whatever i guess okay i don't know I'm, All right. I'm sorry. I'll stop at no, speaking okay. for cheating. I feel <laughs> gross now, but it's just like this guy sucks, and I'm like, "Why? Well, you're such a cool lady," and it's that's that's kind of sad. It's like you had all these men chasing you, but hey, yeah. whatever. Unfortunately, Ambrosine didn't meet quite the success that Elizabeth had. Readers were excited to get their hands on Nell's much-anticipated second oh. novel, but the quote, serious, sad, unhappily married heroine disappointed readers looking for another witty single Elizabeth. They wanted adventure, romance, drama, but they did not want to be confronted by the real-life implications of what this could look like. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Moving forward. Also, I want to say that the second novel syndrome seems... Have you ever heard of second yeah, novel syndrome? Where yeah, where it's not as good as the first. Yeah, that yeah. just is like a very common theme mm-hmm. amongst writers, especially debut authors who have such a big breakout yeah. success. And it's like you got to match it or... Oof. Yeah. So she's just kind of like... She's, she's living up to the trend. She's, mm. she's fine. So Nell's sick on and off again, but she felt better in 1902, well enough to join her husband in Rome, where they took up the new sport of motor cars, traveling all along the Italian countryside. Only once again, she grew ill. Jeez. Yeah. So like, again, a lot of the same, like, she complains about um, pains in her side a lot. Mm. So that's why I'm like, all better. And yeah, I don't know. Um, this time, the doctors diagnosed Nell with hysteria, Ugh. a disease greatly centered around women's sexuality and their physical desires why would they do because like if if it's common that everybody knows her husband sucks and she's super faithful so like is it that she's not having enough sex or like she's having like is she, it bad sex like where where's the hysteria part coming it's from kind of that leftover medieval notion of an imbalance of humor yeah. so it's just like i don't know what's wrong with you i'm just gonna say this kind of and it's kind of like um your 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 overwhelming presence of female desire is making itself known in a physical way so it's annoying they're not shaming the guy because he, like, you're not taking care of your yeah. wife if she's got hysteria no, it's all the woman's problem Ugh. yeah yeah she felt better for a little while but when the couple left for switzerland in 1902 she again fell ill Jeez. and we're gonna keep seeing this pretty much until she starts becoming a famous author and then i don't know if it like takes a side burner or mm-hmm. if she like feels better who knows i wonder how much of it is like emotion or emotional yeah like again that's why i'm like depression Mm -hmm. ppd still during this time it's entirely possible yeah she could have had some something else going on you know with all this other stuff yeah of course we aren't doctors yeah i don't don't yeah no no no. No. you just know that hysteria is not a valid medical (sighs) diagnosis gross yeah makes me hysterical Um, during this time in 1902, she returned home to Shearing Hall in Essex, but the doctors this time prescribed a retreat to the Bohemian Mountain Spa in Carlsbad, a town above a narrow valley in what is today the Czech Republic. As a quick side note to remember for later, before she fell ill during this time, <laughs> Nell became enamored with a Siberian tiger skin in Lucerne, but Clayton refused to buy it for her. So I, Nell 
being Nell, a successful author, a Libra, and a quote or and a independent mm. woman, bought the rug all on her own. Oh, good. Okay. And she would keep it with her pretty much until the end of her days. Nice. Just remember that rug. Right. It's very important. It's I'm it's got it pin. in my mind palace. Put a, put a pin. It's Excellent. in there. Excellent. Nell would again make a full recovery, and in Carlsbad, she discovered a company of literary-minded individuals that helped soothe some of her bruised heart and reassure her of her skill as an author. In 1906, Nell wrote her third novel and her first third-person narrative, Beyond the Rocks, a love story. This is the story about a heroine's search for love after she is married to an unattractive rich man. Theodora, the heroine, meets a charming rake named Hector, modeled after one of Nell's own crushes flirtations or paramours possibly named Alistair in his cur. Hector the hero is deep and arresting with serious eyes and a rakish personality that honestly fits a lot of descriptions of histo- historical heroes today. Mm. I almost said hysterical heroes. <laughs> um, likewise, Theodora is beautiful, innocent, and pure. Again, a characterization that I think we can all agree was heavily modeled in pretty much every bodice yeah, ripper heroine. Forever. This is Nell's first official love story, and though it earned nearly universally bad reviews, it sold better than any of her books except Elizabeth. Oh, cool. The success of such a story, a romantic novel that focuses on the relationship, the will they, the won't they, with some classic characterizations, and one that was dedicated to a heavily female readership, led Nell to embrace her role as the, quote, romantic authoress Eleanor Glynn. So is that why the book got bad reviews? Uh, In part, it was... Was it just a bad book? No, I think it was the fact that it was such a like a departure from what mm, she had previously she written. Done. This was her first third person narrative mm-hmm. where before everything had been um, the, the epistolary format. Mm-hmm. And also this was the heroine was married mm-hmm. and about to undertake an affair. So because like you've just said, they don't really care about affairs, but right. they, I guess this is very public. Yes. And that's the problem. And she's talking about it. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. It's supposed to be like a thing Hush. you don't talk about in yeah. the back. Shameful, yep. yada, yada. Yep. Okay. And it's not even shameful. It's just like, we don't talk about it. Okay. We don't talk about Bruno. You don't talk about affairs. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> um, this brings us to the crux of our discu- discussion. Three Weeks, a book so scandalous. It was the first novel ever deemed, okay, possibly ever deemed trash by literary critics. <laughs> we still- How did they define Fanny Hill? I think it was written by a man, so they didn't care. Oh, okay. So it wasn't as trashy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I hope you hear my eyeballs rolling in the background. In the fall of 1906, the Glens returned to Essex, and Clayton amused himself with shooting and hunting. Nell hated shooting. But the woods and the gardens still inspired her. And in a tale much like Mother Mary Shelley of Frankenstein fame, Nell told a story one rainy night to friends about a consort named Draga and King Alexander I of Serbia. This is tragically a true story about Alexander I marrying Draga, a widow 12 years older than him. Serbians hated Draga, and in the end, she was the first queen killed by her people since Marie Antoinette. But Nell felt inspired, enamored, and she couldn't shake the story out of her head. She decided during the splendid 1906 autumn to write a story about a doomed affair between an older, sophisticated, married <laughs> Slavic lady and a, quote, innocent young man she chooses to have an affair with. Are you ready, Jen? Oh, I've been okay. ready. I've been really okay. excited to hear about three weeks. So. 
Three Weeks is the story of a Slavic queen we only know by the name Lady. She's mm. traveling through Switzerland, and she meets an English aristocrat named Paul and decides to have an affair with him so that she can get pregnant. Is it because the husband can't get her pregnant, or she just really wants Paul's baby? That one isn't really covered. I okay. just know that she wants a baby. But she said, like, this specifically, you are going to give me a baby. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The novel is told from Paul's point of view, and the reader is taken on a quick three-week-long journey of seduction before the couple eventually splits ways in Venice. Paul awakens alone in Venice to find his lady mysteriously gone. He nearly dies from brain fever, but when he recovers, he learns that the lady's husband is an insane Slavic king. The lady gives birth to a son who looks like Paul, but then the king murders the lady. Oh my god. The servants kill the king in revenge, and Paul is left all alone by the end of the book, but he's happy in the knowledge that his son will one day be king. It's wild. Wow. Okay. I, I didn't see that ending coming. Yeah. I, I want to read this book because I just, I don't, I mean, part of me thinks this doesn't count as a romance because of all the murder, but it's still just like, they don't it, end it's up got together. so many cool things in it though. That's why they mostly call this a sex novel mm. and not a romance. Okay. But like, I wouldn't define this as a romance because obviously it's not H-E-A at the end. Yeah. No happily ever after. Mm-hmm. But it's, oh, it's just fascinating. I love that it's a sex novel too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're getting to that. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> all right. While the story of three weeks in and of itself seems a bit out there, what truly made the story so sensational was the depiction of sex and feminine desire throughout the whole book. Readers today wouldn't necessarily consider this erotica or honestly, I wouldn't even give it like a one chili pepper spicy read. Mm -hmm. But to contemporary readers, the way that the lady seduced Paul and how these scenes were written was just scandalous. So it's like a closed door romance, but then it's like, oh, it's not even closed door. Oh, okay. So there is yeah. some sex in it. It's just not yes. descriptive. It's just not like graphic. Okay. It's like would win a bad literary award. Like there's no PNC <laughs> described. <laughs> um, I don't even think it would get like the bad sex scene award. Okay. I, it, like, it's just it's, it was what that wasn't the important part. The important part was what the seduction. Yeah. So we just read. Um, what book did we read for book club? Life's too short. Life's too short. The way that the love scenes were described in that oh, book was very similar to this. Okay. There was a lot of sensuous writhing okay. in this though, like a snake. Mm. Okay. Sorry, that was popped in my head. Anyways, the most infamous scene happens. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. On a tiger skin rug. Oh. Paul walks into the room to discover the lady clad in what we would probably today call a negligee with a scarlet rose between her lips. Mm -hmm. The lady then proceeds to seduce Paul at a distance from the tiger skin rug, forbidding him to touch her while she has a good time. (laughs) Please remember, this is a work podcast. <laughs> that's all. I'm, that's all I'm saying. Please don't call our bosses. This is this is literate, <laughs> this is a book. This is a literate uh, adventure. Yes, I mean this is like the future. This is the the foundation of romance novels. It it's, is. Uh, it really academic. is. When they finally consummate their relationship, the Tiger Queen takes control, instructing Paul, taking her own pleasure, and even role-playing. Part of me thinks this must have been really shocking, but I know the Victorians were kind of freaks. That's the thing. It was another yeah. one of those like. Don't talk about the dirty sheets. Mm-hmm. But we all know thing. what's going on. Exactly. We just don't say it out loud. Like the Victorians are freaks. So it feels like a lot of this. She's just saying the quiet part out loud. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. exactly what it is. And to a wider readership too. Mm. As Hallett says, three weeks made explicit the strength of women's sexual desire, the different quality of its character, and the failure of so much of contemporary culture to register or understand both. It showed that women could take charge and have a good time both in and out of bed. I guess we should be glad they weren't burning this book in the streets. Wait, really? Mm. Oh, my God. Mm. (laughs) I got to stop making jokes. 
bearing this in mind, Jeez. I think it's obvious that while many were excited about Nell's newest book, the book was also denounced by critics and men. Well, okay. I care what they think. I, we honestly. really don't care. Um, but there is a Puritan society of women yeah, right, that we can talk about later. Okay. Despite advice from her friends warning Nell not to publish three weeks because of its adulterous heroine, eroticism, and the violation of society's no-talking code, Nell went forward with her story. So when they said, you, know, you shouldn't do this, like, the publisher was totally willing. Oh, yeah. Like, they didn't care at all. They no. were worried about, what, her reputation They kind of even, thing? so Duckworth Publishers even engaged a very canny publicity stunt. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to come out in April, and in April they announced, oh, no, this is going to be delayed publication until later, but here's, like, all this sensation to build up excitement. Mm -hmm. And then on June 11th, they're like, surprise, we're oh, publishing it, it today. So, yeah. It was branded quickly as immoral, inane, or both. <laughs> both. One male reviewer in the London Bookman called it the worst sex novel yet. So was there sex novels before this? I don't know. Okay. Like there aren't I think famous enough to have been left over. Not to be like the labeled sex novel. Mm -hmm. I think that this was especially one of the first ones written by a woman that was okay. mass published. And that's like one of the big things. Gotcha. Because when um, he's like the worst sex novel yet, I, to yeah. me that feels like oh you've got like a couple before yeah, this. Yeah. It's like okay, what are the what are the good ones then? Yeah. <laughs> like what are we reading this by? Can I have examples, please? Thank you. I need a bibliography. Mm -hmm. um, but the the reviewer would go on to say that such books quote belonged to a tribe now increasing at a rate without example of shameless and shameful fiction. Society turned its back on Nell, and King Edward VII even forbade anyone from talking about the book around him Jeez. until his death in 1910. Wasn't King Edward kind of a jerk? Yeah. And, like, this he is what also, he's upset about? He was also very much another hypocrite because, uh, like, he was yeah, having was affairs. Say, yeah. And he was like, no, you can't talk about this. I feel like nobody actually cares when they're being a hypocrite. No. Like, they just yeah. go and do whatever they want anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The book was even censored in boarding schools in the UK and at circulating libraries and many booksellers in the UK and even Canada. A federal judge in the US even ruled that the book couldn't be sent through the mail and W.H. Smith & Son, Britain's largest bookseller, refused to sell the book on the ground of its impropriety. Hey, look, Jen, we're having a book a discussion about book banning today, too. It's nice that it never really leaves us. Yeah, no, it Maybe, never. I, that was very sarcastic. It sucks that this has been a recurring problem. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> we still have 10 pages. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Nell was infuriated by the hypocrisy of this reception, obviously. Yeah. Indeed, Nell appeared to be one of the few members of her social circle who remained physically faithful to her husband. That, do you know that is so funny that like the woman who is so devoted to this jerk of a man is the one who's also writing all the adultery fan fiction. And yet here were her peers, who no doubt engaged in their own adultery and affairs. Like, How dare you? Like putting down her book for this very thing. <sighs> I know. It's just like a whole circle of hypocrisy. Jeez. Yet still, people kept reading and talking about three weeks. Yeah, that too. Oh, like they're going to be, oh, I hate it so much. And then they're reading it when nobody else can see. It's like Fifty Shades. <laughs> hate it or love it. It's like Fifty Shades. It's a mm -hmm. global sensation. Mm -mm. And in, it grew so famous possibly because of its notoriety. That's true, yeah. Tell somebody a book is terrible and they shouldn't read it. And you know what? I'm going to go read that book. Yeah, I want to see if you're wrong or right. Yeah, it's like I'm going to make I want to be a part of it. Nell wasn't alone in this treatment, although her near-global notoriety and the way Three Weeks was decried really speaks for romance novels and women authors in a way we can still observe today. So often, Jen and I ask, why do people genre shame romance so much? What makes this genre so reviled by so many critics but loved by so many readers? I really want to quote Hallett because I think she just, she phrases it beautifully. So, to paraphrase. Since its emergence in the 18th century, the modern English novel has suffered under the weight of its reputation with providing women readers with stories of sentiment, romance, for, in a word, trash. 
Men read philosophy, history, biography, travel. Women read religious tracts, poetry, and good moralistic novels that taught the importance of sentiment and honor when well chaperoned. Bad amatory ones preoccupied with sex and romance when left to their own devices. Mm. Mm. It was Mm. the women who wrote these popular novels that literary critics, overwhelmingly a male sphere, decried and walled off from the good books. Indeed, Nathaniel Hawthorne even complained that American books were wholly given over to a damned mob of scribbling women, and I should have no chance of success while the public taste is occupied with their trash. Sorry, calm down. That sounds like James Patterson a month ago. <laughs> okay. Right. Oh, yeah, that's true. I forgot he did that. <laughs> mm, yeah. Don't worry, I'll link that in the show notes, too. And yet, all five American authors to qualify as what we would today call bestsellers during Hawthorne's life Mm -hmm. were women writing sentimental tales. It would take years for Hawthorne and Herman Melville even to join the bestseller list in America. Do you think some of it is jealousy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like... These little women mm-hmm. are writing, and I have no possible chance. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm writing, the writing good stuff. literature. Yeah. yeah, totally, definitely. Mm. Despite the fact that by Nell's time, both men and women wrote so-called sex novels. So, yeah, apparently there were okay. more. I Around. just don't know. I'll have to That's look okay. more I just it. was wondering. Yeah. Um, sex novels were books that emphasized sexual psychology as much as stimulation and the interior sensations of sexual acts. <sighs> Critics overwhelmingly blamed women authors such as Nell for the immorality of that time. Doesn't that sound familiar? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It feels like we're coming back oh, around. cyclical. Jeez. Yet, the overwhelming success in public demand for three weeks, despite what the critics and censors had to say, led to a watershed moment for the publishing industry. The way that sex was depicted in these novels changed, and motifs that Nell used in her novel became commonplace, and indeed are still recognizable today. Tiger skin, rose in the lips, lingerie... Still I'm, signs of it's romance. very cliche at this point all that stuff yes it's been so done but at the time it was like revolutionary yeah no i could see that and okay yeah yeah i, I wonder sometimes where these things start and i'm glad we are now yeah here we go thank you now yeah um speaking of Nell, she felt inspired by all of the press both good and bad and would begin to move forward with a stage adaptation which would take her over <laughs> a year to get up and running Wait, she like loved a sta- the theater a stage adaption of this book uh-huh wow uh-huh okay uh-huh uh-huh all right in that time, though, Nell suffered multiple blows. First and foremost being that Clayton's gambling debts nearly brought the family to ruination. Nell quickly became the Glynn's family's sole provider, and where before writing had been her escape from the pressures and disenchantment of her married life, now writing became an obligation. Mm. She had to make money, and the only way she, a married gentlewoman with two teenage daughters, an aging mother, and a wastrel husband could do so was to write her heart out. It appears that Nell was able to make enough money to continue to feed her family's lavish lifestyle with little to no difficulty, so don't worry, she's doing fine. Oh, good, okay. That same year, Clayton and the girls went to Asia on a glamorous trip, and Nell went to America to promote three weeks on a press tour. The family would also continue to support the theater and attend boarding schools and go on tours, so Nell's doing fine, despite Clayton's best attempts otherwise, and she was able to support her family. Yeah, he he sucks. In America, Nell fell in love with New York, although the people didn't always like her back. Most notably, Nell had a dust-up with a group known as the Pilgrim Mothers, who invited her. They invited her to speak at the Waldorf Astoria, but then they refused to let her sit at the speaker's table and stuck her at the end of the line. Was it just to shame her? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much just to, like, be mean girls about it? Yeah. I I think it was sort of like they invited her before they read the book, and then they read the book, and they were like, oh, Uh, no. Yeah. Um, they even, like, the Nell and the mothers had, like, this newspaper feud that went on for a few weeks, and it led to even more repression of three weeks within the states. 
The Comstock Law, which, as I said earlier, outlawed sending obscene, lewd, or lascivious matters through the mail, even led to an individual in Boston being fined for purchasing a copy of the book. Jeez. And I was just like, how would you even know? Like, do people aren't going through mail yet? Is this just like, is There's this like, like a, no computer records? I'm just wondering if this was like, uh, like a principled thing of like, this is what we believe in. It's like a, like a, I don't know the word I'm or looking for. Or a nosy Nelly next door. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm wondering if it, if it's just to shame her or if there was an actual way to be like, oh, this was in the mail. I'm going to suit, like, I'm going to get you. Mm. Or if it's one of those things where it's like, I'm just going to make a big scene of what I believe in by, you know, this ridiculous yeah. law. I can't actually I definitely think it was part, like the second part, mm. but I also wonder when was the post office established? I thought pretty early. Okay. I don't know, but it almost seems to me like this is before laws about not going through people's mail. So it, to me, if it's not anything you can actually enforce, that was the word I was looking for. If yeah. you can't enforce this law, then what is the point of this law? It is just right. probably to be like, you know, these are our values. This lady sucks. You should not do this. Like, yeah, it's one of those um, symbolic things. And this point in U.S. history is very much so... This is when we had revivalists mm -hmm. and like Baptist faith really start rising. Yeah. So it's like that period of kind of this revitalization of what some would call traditional American faith systems. Mm. Um, and so there was a big pushback, especially going forward into the roaring 20s of like faith in society and like morals. And that's just funny to me. Um, on that note, the critical response to three weeks in the States had the potential to spell damnation for Glenn. American critics called the book the equivalent to one long orgy audacious fiction a nasty book a scarlet crested wave that had deluged our once peaceful literary land and my personal favorite three weeks appears to be about 21 <laughs> days too much <laughs> okay that's funny that one was funny i was like that's that's pretty witty thank you but, you know this sounds a lot like what they said about 50 shades yeah exactly that's really funny yet despite all of this three weeks was a runaway bestseller i love this quote this is like one of my favorite quotes glenn mm -hmm. says it herself I know that the critics have condemned the book severely, but it does not disturb me in the least. With 50,000 copies sold last month and the book is still selling, I think I can stand a little criticism, don't you? That's just great. That's pretty good. I love it. All right. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the Washington Post defended Glynn, affirming that it is not that her works are intended for an audience alleged to be intellectually superior to that catered to by the old school novelist. It is that she appeals to an advanced sensibility. Oh, how advanced. Yeah. <laughs> Nell would leave America on a wave of notoriety. Her persona as a scandalous, glamorous English author, not afraid to write about shocking social interactions firmly in place. She lived up to the affirmation that sex sells. Yeah, fair enough. I can't argue with that. The following fall, she announced she would write Elizabeth Visits America, so the second edition of mm -hmm. um, Elizabeth, uh, Visit of Elizabeth, probably both out of desire to ride the wave of infamy and to capitalize off of another publication. However, as a bit of a spoiler, Elizabeth Part 2 would never see the light of day. Aww. Due to personal struggles and re realizations, the publication would be delayed by a year before it was eventually set aside in favor of other projects. Clayton's gambling debts grew to greater proportions, and his health also continued to decline as he increasingly turned to drinking and other vices. Oh, God. Of she should have married that first millionaire. I know. Nell would call the next 10 years a, quote, never-ending flow of debts, which required many hastily written novels, the advance payments on which were already mortgaged to some pressing creditor or urgently required to pay household bills or school fees for the children. At a certain point, it's like... I I know. I'm just mad she like couldn't make him bashing stop gambling. Your head against the wall, I know. In the meantime, Nell continued to work on it, adapting three weeks into a play because we're still we're still in that time frame. 
Yet further efforts to ban the novel and all related materials would hinder Nell going forward. The novel was judged obscene by the Massachusetts Supreme Court and sales were banned in Boston. The American Library Association called for the suppression of all similar novels and in the six wow. largest circulating libraries in Britain quickly followed suit. That's interesting that it's similar too. Yeah. Was there a lot of copycats after this? I can't speak to that. Okay. I'm not sure. But I have a feeling that that whole like sex novel trend, yeah. that's what they were riding. Well, because thinking about Fifty Shades and how many things came out after that, that was basically like a, yeah. uh, you Same know, an thing. imitation. Yeah, yeah. probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think that there were a lot of knockoff copycats. Later, we would see a lot of knockoff copycat plays mm-hmm. that were based on her books that she had like no hand in and that were definitely like erotica. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're starting to see maybe a little bit of that jump in the sphere. Nell moved forward despite the opposition, financing and staging the play herself, and she even starred as Lady in the production. Oh, nice. That's cute. She pu- she paid for everything up front. The total cost of the performance was a, a equivalent to $3,750 that today is $120,764.67. Unfortunately, the play was something of a flop. Um, by design, Nell forewent any of the, quote, erotic abandonment that had been found in the novel. I was wondering what she was going to do about yeah, that. Yeah, she passed up the sex scenes. And instead, there was more of like this illusion than actual action. I mean, that's fair. I don't know how you could get away with that yeah. on stage. We don't I've have been kind of, at this time. <laughs> I mean, I've been kind of wondering with the plays how that part plays out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she just, she didn't do it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, can't most likely, this was an attempt to evade yet more suppression and censorship as, again, King Edward VII was still forbidding mention of this novel and the office of the Lord Chamberlain, George Redford, forbade the performance. Nell ended up losing a great deal of money that's in this fun. venture and she instead turned back to writing. All was not lost, though, as Nell met the man who would help her break her streak of fidelity. Yeah! Although we shouldn't clap too hard because he's... Oh, we're going to want to punch him here in a few minutes. Does she just pick bad guys? For now, he's a very good guy. Okay. Like, so for it takes now. a minute? Yeah, oh, for this God. minute. No. Lord George Curzon, Marquess of Kettleston, attended the play and had read the novel and was entranced by Nell's performance. Nell likewise fell deeply in love with the gentleman, and together they entered into a long-standing affair that would further inspire Nell's writing. Finally. Reign. Thank I you, know. Nell. After the death of Elizabeth Visits America, the author went to St. Petersburg in December of 1909 to gather material for her next novel. When the Hour Came, as it was called in the UK, or His Hour, the American in film title. His Hour was received with glowing commendations and cemented Nell's role as a sexual novel writer. So we're moving away from sex novel and now it's like sexual Sh- novel writer. Is that writer. like fancier? Yeah. Okay. It's like more literary, I think. Uh, oh, gotcha. This is a novel about a difficult romance between an English widow and a Russian <gasps> prince. Is that after Boris? Yes. Yes! But also, like, there's a lot of influence from George. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair. I mean, you can combine people. Yeah, but she's also at the Russian court during this time, so I'm like, did she see Boris? Oh, my God, please. I know. I know. Just, like, the drama. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And it debated some of the morality of a widow entering into an affair. Isn't that better than if you're married? Yeah, and that's why I think it was more widely received, because she was a widow already. Um, Indeed, we see possibly one of the first uses of dubious consent as a trope. As the hero, trigger warning, hero convinces the heroine that he had raped her, and he uses that as a way to force the heroine to accept his hand in marriage. How do you convince, like, was she happy until he's like, no, actually, you're not. Kind of like gaslighting her, I think. Yeah. Into being like, you slept with me, and I forced you into this, so now you have to marry me. I want to read the book to figure it out. Yeah, because that doesn't make any sense on the face of it, but... 
I mean, I would think you'd be really happy if, you know, your partner was really enjoying sex with you. Like, that's great. And then convince yeah. them to marry you after that. You don't have to be like, well, I raped you, so now you have to marry. Like, yeah. I don't, like, the logic's going over my head. Yeah. I don't know if it's maybe a time period thing. I think it's more like they had sex outside marriage and she, maybe she enjoyed it or uh-huh. maybe she, like, didn't want to marry him. And then he's like, no, you had sex with me. I forced you, so now you have to marry oh, me. Oh, Okay. Okay. Kind of like Flame in the Flowers. Ugh, except that was actual literal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and from all, all like, anything I can see, like, the heroine in this book did actually consent. Just the hero convinced her that she didn't. And that's I don't pretty know. amazing considering, okay, Flame in the Flower was the 60s, and we had to go through this whole oh, yeah. hub-above of, like, oh, I'm not married, so I have to rape you because you can't have sexual desire, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And here she is, where she's just like, nope, I'm going to have affairs. <laughs> I'm going to be a widow who, who has all this sex. Like, yeah. super cool. Yeah. And where three weeks, a novel of adultery and sensuality drove critics to clutch their pearls. His hour was a compelling tale with a Byron-esque hero, a heroine who needed to be <sighs> led down the path of sexuality, and themes that appealed to a wider readership. Mm. Yeah. So we really need to read the three weeks and yeah. then read his hour. Yeah, I'm really curious about maybe this Maybe we stuff. can watch like this. It was a silent film, so maybe oh, we can God. watch the film too. <laughs> That'd be really fun. All right. Nell had again found her literary success only to suffer heartbreak. Kurtzon, the cad, broke up with her, claiming that he just wanted to be friends. Oh, well, that's not as bad. I thought he was going to, like, stab her or something. The first time. Well, oh, no. There's more? Mm, they would have a period of long on-again, off-again relationship um, that we'll get to the ending of it, and you'll just want to... Mm, him oh, at the end. Great. Okay. Basically, he toyed with Nell. <gasps> Yeah, no. the entire time he's like, I love you. No, we can only no. be friends. No, I love you. Oh, I'm so heartbroken over this. Is he I one of the first you. F, I don't want to like F boys? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to owe you a dollar. So. No, it's okay. Um, Nell, as was her right, used this heartbreak in her writing and published The Reason Why in 1911. And I can't say this one. Halcyone, Halcyone, H A L C Y O N E, in 1912. Both books featured bitter heroines married to men they didn't love. Okay. Halcyone was undoubtedly one of Nell's least well-received novels, featuring a heroine who consistently, morosely, recited Greek philosophy and talks with tree spirits while her lover can't decide whether he wants to marry her or another woman. Oof. Something that would be really foretelling of Nell's own relationship with Kurtzon moving forward. Yeah, like I, said, I can't. Sucks. I couldn't read that one. No. That one would be pretty hard because that's one of my yeah. least favorite tropes that some romance novels pull like just dump him i know and you can i mean you can obviously see why nell wrote yeah. it but at the same time you're like oh girl no delete the facebook status why isn't therapy invented yet yes just don't do it just delete <sighs> delete anyways the reason why though one of nell's least favorite novels nonetheless turned out to be another bestseller teaching nell that quote no matter how much pain she took with her words there was little matter to the bottom line mm. Despite the fame, she kept having to write more and more. And following Halcyon, she published three more books in 1913. The Contrast in Other Stories, The Point of View, and The Sequence. She became jaded, recognizing that money had taken away her muse. And now she wrote only to pay the bills. That's too bad. Nell's look continued to turn south after her sister and brother-in-law boarded the Titanic. But they survived. Oh, well, that's good. But... Oh, no. <laughs> because of their actions, Nell's brother-in-law, who was Lucy's second husband, Cosmo, was labeled a coward. Lucy was maligned, and they lost their social standing. Remember that scene again in Titanic where Hal, Kate Winslet's fiancé, bribes his way onto a lifeboat? 
Cosmo kind of did the same thing. Oh. And newspapers reported that he wouldn't let the boats pick up more survivors in the water. Is that what actually happened, or is that just, like, the newspapers running wild? There's a bit of hearsay. There's an mm-hmm. actual trial about this. Like, there's oh. an actual investigation. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't, rec- like, I don't quite understand what the final ruling was, but, like, basically his social standing was just shot. Whatever happened was bad enough yeah, that he's, like, exactly. he's yeah. gone. Yeah. Um, Lucy was able to make a comeback, her notoriety lending itself to her career in fashion and clothing. But Cosmo, he never made a comeback and was actually held, like I said, in a legal inquiry in London. He was revealed as an unusually solicitous husband with little facility for explaining himself a man who noblesse oblige led him to believe too little was enough and his peers just like turned his back on him hmm. and then the great war started <laughs> it's not a good time no world war one officially began with the assassination of archduke franz ferdinand in 1914 and would last through november 1918 during that time, approximately 20 million people died, and another 21 million were injured. Nell was in Paris with her daughters when the war broke out. They're fine. Don't worry. And she writes that, at the time, no one really took into account what was going on. It was just a distant concern that hadn't yet affected them. No one yet understood the implications of the coming years. Nell quotes, How oddly ignorant we all were of the possibilities of the political situation. Though the sense of coming calamity was in the air, no one appeared to associate it with war. Hmm. As the pressing situation became increasingly evident and the Reich made its insidious march westward, Nell and her daughters enmeshed themselves in the war efforts. This turn in the tide of history, though catastrophic, nonetheless presented a new opportunity for Nell. A French propaganda organization approached Nell in the summer of 1915 to write articles for the American press, and Nell jumped at the chance, seeing it as her duty to help the press convince the Americans to join the war. Thus began Nell's shifting career and her journey into being a war correspondent. Wow, that is quite the change. Oh, but wait, there's more. In September 1915, Nell published her first nonfiction, a set of essays entitled Three Things. In it, Nell's emerging opinion on feminist issues is clearly expounded, and she emphasizes what it means to be a modern woman. She demands new approaches to marriage and motherhood, education in order to be able to work, and that men should, quote, treat the modern woman as a comrade, a creature of respect and consult, who he cannot rule just because he is a man and she is a woman. She also calls for rights to divorce for all the masses and warns still about men's nature, a sentiment that I think we uterus owners and female identifying people can still agree with. (laughs) And honestly, it's somewhat refreshing take considering Nell had suffered for years of illness and traumatic births under the scientific belief that women's nature led them to be inferior scientifically and naturally to men. Gross. Nell, obviously embittered by her ongoing on-again, off-again relationship with George Kurtzlan, took it out on Paige, laying bare her wishes for equality and recognition from the man she loved, and making clear her stance on men like her duplicitous, conniving husband, Clayton Glenn. So everybody's making fun of Cosmo for all of this stuff. Does yeah. anybody ever make fun of Clayton or George? Yeah. Okay. George, not so much, because George was, he was, up, he was a lord. Oh, so you and, can't really touch him. Yeah, he was mm. kind of like, sure. Okay. Fine, whatever. He George will be George, but Clayton. Everybody's like, oh my God, here's Clayton again. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bad jokes made about his gambling and like okay. the people he gambled with. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of racist jokes, like anti-Semitic jokes, oh, okay. made at the time. Um, but yeah, everybody was like, yeah, Clayton sucks. Okay, he's terrible. was he Jewish? No. Oh, okay, just like the people he played yeah. with. Yeah, because of course the gambling during the yeah. early 1900s. Yeah, yep. 
Um, during this time, Nell also began writing The Career of Catherine Bush, a new departure from Nell's previously higher class novels. Instead, Catherine is of lower middle class origins and she is preoccupied with living as a secretary while educating herself. This reflected a growing sentiment of the time where women could be seen in the workforce and not just as heroines waiting for the hero to sweep them off their feet. Nice. Catherine as a heroine is described as 22 and drinking from the cup of love for the first time. She has sex with a man with no intention wow. of marrying him and instead focuses on her education. Jeez. Snaps okay. her Catherine. All right. Yeah. All right. I see you, Kathy. Catherine Bush was serialized in both the U.S. and the U.K. And in the U.S., it was in Cosmopolitan Magazine. Wow. Yeah. William Randolph Hearst had some reservations over the publication, fearing that the heroine, unmarried and having sex, perish the thought, um, would cause a scandal and the readers wouldn't be able to sympathize. But readers rejoiced, obviously, and Catherine was heralded as the new Becky Sharp, mm-hmm. one of Nell's own personal idols from childhood. That's really cool because I feel like we always have this view of, of people back then being really like uptight moral one way yeah. and then here we have like the celebration of um this new kind of character yeah. and this new kind of woman. and all the readers being like no give me more give yeah. me more mm-hmm. yeah in the uk Catherine was a sensation heralded as a brilliant novel and nell's best since elizabeth the sex and heroine's morals were even applauded with one reviewer cautioning let no one with an old-fashioned preference for the stock moral read it it is far too revolutionary too subversive of social oh. discipline. 1915 still proved to be an even bigger year than Nell could have expected because in November she received news that Clayton had died. He's yeah! in his sleep. Yes, Clayton <laughs> he is no more. Woohoo! I should not be cheering this, but you know what? He sucked. Yes. Nell's long-suffering marriage, the pillar to which she had first been chained, then upon which she had stood to better reach the clouds of infamy, was over. Nell mourned him. She was a good wife to the end. But at the same time, she recognized that one more tradition that had held her back and had held her to the past was gone. Yeah. She threw herself into her new work, going deep with the survivors and finishing Catherine Bush. Her experiences with the soldiers and survivors of World War One shifted her perception of life just a little more, and she walked away seeing how little, quote, this life matters. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah. yeah. She's just like, she's 50, 52 years old by this point, 50, mm-hmm. 52, and she is like coming into her own. Mm-hmm. She's just, oh, man. Okay. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. Like still in like 50s, you can still kind exactly. of come into your own menu. And that was something that um, Hallett talks about in her book, how Nell observed during this time women of her age, mm-hmm. like, quote, old age, because, you know, 1900s, 50 was up yeah, there. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Um, like going into depression and mm-hmm. going into homes and doing all this. And Nell was like, no, I'm just living my life. Yeah. Like, I'm just starting now. Mm-hmm. And she had so much more to do. The war changed a lot of things. Some not for good, some for the better. For Nell, she was left irrevocably at a turning point. She was further changed as her affair with George Kurtzon officially came to a close by the announcement of his engagement (gasps) in the paper. Wait for it. Oh, no. She got this news while she was at his country house, (gasps) redecorating and waiting for him to come home. Wow. Obviously, she left him. Don't worry. She left immediately. Nell is quoted as saying, in 1917, I died. Oh, geez. She was left to find new meaning, and she buried herself in being a war reporter during the final years of the war. Her view on politics, self, national identity, women's rights, they were all tried and changed during the war. And Nell relished it. 55 years old by the time the war ended, Nell was entering a new phase of her life. 
1918, the end of the war was in sight, and Nell wrote the essay, When Our Men Come Home, discussing what the end of the war could mean for women. The essay, a brilliant piece of writing, served as an entree into the world that would preoccupy the second half of Nell's life, Hollywood. Yeah. Following Nell's success with Cosmo, Cosmopolitan, not like her sister's husband, with Cosmopolitan <laughs> and the war, <laughs> she was invited to Spain by Queen Victoria, Spanish Queen Victoria, to write about the court of Alfonso XIII. These letters were expanded into Letters from Spain, published later in 1924, but were originally published again in Cosmopolitan. An invitation was issued then by the famous Players Lasky Studio to bring Nell to L.A. to write for the motion picture business. Wow. Nell negotiated an extravagant contract because snaps for Nell. Mm -hmm. She would be paid $3,000 to travel from New York to L.A. in a Pullman drawing room car accompanied by a personal maid and a dressmaker. Wow. And then she would be paid 10000 for an original story synopsis or an adaptation of an existing novel. That's so cool. That's like her. over $100,000. Yeah, that's a lot to grab her. Yeah, in that time. Mm-hmm. At last, she says, here was a unique opportunity to spread the ideals and the atmosphere of romance and glamour into the humblest home. So in 1920, Nell left Paris boarded the Mauritania, and set sail for America's shores. And that, dear listener, is where our story today ends. Though this is not the end of Eleanor Nelglin. She lived for 23 more years and became one of early Hollywood's most influential writers, patrons, and leading figures. She would spawn the careers of well-known actors like Clara Bow and Rudolph Valentino. She coined the phrase it, as in you have it, and it girl. She rubbed shoulders with the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Samuel Goldwyn, Gloria Swanson, and so many more whose names haven't been lost to history, as has Eleanor Glynn. She was so influential, in fact, that the popular sentiment of the day was that if Hollywood hadn't already existed, Eleanor would have had to invent it. By the time she passed away in 1943, Nell had written more than 40 books, countless magazine articles, and 27 stories that became films. She was reviled, loved, admired, and lusted after. She reoriented the romance genre and set the mold for a new type of celebrity, the best-selling author. And she recreated how heterosexual sex was depicted in Hollywood. To this day, without most of us knowing it, we bow to Nell's tropes, depictions, and characterizations. I will leave you, dear listener, with one last taste of Nell, as told to us by Samuel Goldwyn of MGM fame. When he meets the woman he depicts as beautiful and Circe-like at a dinner party, he watches Nell go up to an actor and say, My dear boy, you are really very wonderful to look at. And besides, you know, you have it. It? Reed murmured confusedly, wondering perhaps what his press agents and admirers could possibly have overlooked. What do you mean, Mrs. Glynn? Oh, that is my word. It, she repeated in that contralto voice. Don't you see that one syllable expresses everything, all the difference there is between people. You either have it or you haven't. So I'm still curious. Yes. I don't know if you have a theory on this. Is there a reason why we forgot her? Did something happen? Did she have an enemy? No. So nothing like that happened. When she died in 1943, she was still loved. Mm -hmm. I think it was just kind of one of the things she just faded into the background. Um. A, a little bit of a note. I haven't yet finished Hillary Hallett's book. Oh, so, so maybe there's something in there. So maybe really there's cu- something in there. I just was wondering if something did happen or if it was just like, you know, we moved on or. No, I don't from know. what I could see, like, even there's pictures of like Clara Bow and other stars dressing up as her after she yeah. dies and like revering her and still talking mm-hmm. about her. So I really think it's just the fact that she wasn't one of the faces we saw on screen mm. that she just kind of faded away into history. Okay. 
Yeah, unfortunately, because well, she's such a great person. Yeah, she sounds awesome. Yeah, and there's so much more I obviously couldn't talk about. We're already what an hour and a half, and like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> so she's <laughs> like, she was a thoroughly awesome person, mm-hmm. and I'm so happy that I stumbled onto the Atlantic article that I picked up this book, Inventing the It Girl by Hillary Hallett, and I thoroughly encourage anybody mm-hmm. who's listening to go pick it up, give it a download, visit your local library, convince them to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's available on Thrift Books, so even though it's brand new. Yeah, it's twenty eight dollars there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe not there. <laughs> maybe not that new. Um, but yeah, it's just mm-hmm. I'm so happy I got to meet Eleanor Glenn. Well, I am very inspired. Yeah. Because I am now gonna change what I was gonna do next time. Uh-huh. With band book week coming up, I did kind of want to talk about band and challenge books like a little bit. Mm-hmm. One of the, I don't, I don't want to say it's a nice thing, <laughs> but one of the things that kind of happens with band books is it's very rarely directed at adult books yeah because it's always like we gotta protect the children yeah but there are a couple that do get banned and i think you know if anybody's interested i'd like to give you a little overview and i think now i think we're gonna have to sit down and read these books and talk about them if because clearly this is like one of the most banned books of all time yes this and fanny hill and like 50 shades so i guess come back next time romance nerds when we are going to actually dive deep into her books and other kinds of banned and challenged books do you want to leave us with that little ditty you promised me i do okay So, would you like to sin with Eleanor Glynn on a tiger skin? (laughs) Or would you prefer to air with her on some other fur? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently Eleanor was like, yeah, that's me. Hey, how's it going? Well, I'm ready to bring my fur next time. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I will not be here. No. (laughs) On that note, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Nopal for sponsoring us. As always, questions, comments, concerns, email us at ragingromantics at nopal.org. Jen, what do we always say? Range on! Bye, guys. This is test try, audio. Try, 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 try. One, two, three. <laughs> Can you say something normal? Say normal. <laughs> okay.